You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. I want to read the first four verses. Romans chapter 1. Paul's writing here and he says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who in his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you were to travel back and wind back the tape and be able to go back to the times of Christ in the year 2,000 years ago, and we were to go to Palestine where Jesus was ministering, and we were to ask the Jewish people and talk to them about what they believed about the Messiah and what their prototype for what the Messiah was and what he was going to do and what kind of leader he would be. They would all have the exact same reference point. It would have been to an event that happened in their history 200 years before Jesus Christ was a public figure uh, preaching the gospel in Palestine. And that would have been in the year 167 B.C. At that time, Judah, Israel, the people of God, were under the authority of what had been the Greek Empire when Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. They were underneath the authority of the empire. Alexander, once he uh, passed, he divided his kingdom into four regions for each of his generals. One of the regions was called uh, the Seleucid Empire. And it was led by a family called the Antiochus, was the leader, and his uh, sons after him. And in 167, there was a revolt by the Jewish people against their pagan oppressors. They were tired of taxation. They were tired of abusive laws. They were tired of abusive force by their police. And so they, they, there was a rebellion that went on. There was a slight uprising. And it was put down pretty quickly and pretty easily. But Antiochus was really upset that it happened, really kind of overreacted, and he had a lot of public executions. He made a big deal of it. And then he forbid the Jewish people from worshiping their God. He closed the temple off from worship. Not only that, he went into the temple that was sacred for the Jewish people and he put Greek idols all in it. And then probably the most hideous thing that Antiochus did during this time is he took a pig, a swine, into the temple in Jerusalem. Again, pigs, swine were unclean animals. They were forbidden to be eaten. He took one into the uh, temple sanctuary, and on the altar, he offered, he, he slit its throat, offered a sacrifice, 
and pig's blood went all over uh, the sacred altar. In this way, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. It was known as the abomination of desolation. He desecrated Israel's temple. And then he began to force the priest to begin to sacrifice to what were the Hellenistic gods and the Hellenistic deities. Well, there was a priest there whose name was Matthias Maccabees. He had five sons. And when Matthias Maccabees was asked to go and lead these sacrifices, he refused to do so. He wouldn't do it. The soldier requiring it uh, continued to, to ask him. He wouldn't do it. And then a, another priest, kind of a backslidden priest, stepped forward and said, I'll do it. I'll be it. And Matthias Maccabees took a sword and killed him. And then he killed the guard. And then Matthias Maccabees got his five children, five boys. They weren't children at the time. They were grown men. And they fled to the wilderness of Judah. They fled there. This happened in 167. And during that year, they met other people who were uh, escaping and who were in a state of wanting to revolt. And they, they met and they began to get together. That year, Matthias actually passed away. And in 166, his third-born son, his name was Judah Maccabees. <clears throat> he had a military background, very smart, very cunning, strategic thinker, took over this movement and he began to start doing guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Empire, the Greek Empire. He began to do these sort of hits on them, and he would hit them, and he would win quick battles, and he, would, he was disrupting them, and he was getting victory after victory after victory over them. And the people in Jerusalem, who were again being oppressed by these guys that weren't able to worship and wanted to worship their God, began to hear about that, and they got sort of emboldened. They got confident. They started believing in this guy and in his leadership and that maybe he's the one who's going to liberate us from pagan rule and dominion. And so uh, Judah Maccabees came to Jerusalem and he began to rally the Jewish people to withstand and to fight against the Seleucid Empire and, and the Greek Empire. And they did that. And in 164... Three years after Antiochus had desecrated the temple, they literally ran off and, and purged Jerusalem of these pagans. They, they ran them out of the city. They recovered the temple. They threw out all the Greek idols and they destroyed them and desecrated them and burned them. They cleansed the temple. The real priests came in and began to do ceremonies and they began to worship God and the people celebrated and, and it was a great time of rejoicing. Uh, for the Jew Jewish people. And they made a holiday to commemorate this great victory. And it's a holiday Hanukkah. It came from this event in their history. Now later on, uh, the, they continued to push back the uh, Seleucid Empire. And they pushed it really all out of Judah altogether. It took about three more years to do that. And uh, Judah Maccabees eventually died. His brothers took over, then his relatives took over. And eventually, the Israel went backwards again. 
and it was conquered by the Roman Empire, and they became, again, a vassal state, sort of a subservient state to the Roman Empire. And this is what was going on in Jesus' day. But the people of Jesus' day, that was their prototype of a Messiah. Judah Maccabees, a military guy, smart, cunning, who defies the odds, who would rally the people to fight, and, and, and they were hoping somebody would come in and would be able to push these pagans out of Jerusalem, push them out of Judah, and they would restore Israel to the place it was supposed to be. And once it was restored, Israel would become a great empire, and they would expand their kingdom, and the fame of their God would be spread all over the world. That's what they believed the Messiah was going to do. And that's what they were hoping for. And that's what they were believing in. Somebody who would do that. And if you're the history of, the contemporary history of Jesus' day, 40 years before and 40 years after, and within that 80-year period, there were several of these messianic movements that erupted in Judah among the Jewish people. Probably the most famous one and maybe the most infamous, most notorious one was done by a guy named Simon Bargoria. And he started out in 68 AD, and he was, again, in his young 30s, he was a military guy, smart, cunning, and in, around in the mid-60s, he got upset and he got concerned about something that was going on in the community. In, in the countryside, the rich arist aristocratic Jews were basically doing indentured slavery of their fellow brothers. They were using them uh, for cheap, cheap labor. Uh, they were very poorly kept. And he got upset about this, and, and Simon Bergori was kind of a Robin Hood. He went in, and he would lead these sort of rebellions in, in the cities, and then he would go to these aristocrats, and they would, he would crash them, and he would liberate the slaves, and he would take all their money, and he would give it to the poor. And this is what he was doing all throughout the remote parts of Judah, all throughout it. And he was getting quite a following, and he was getting quite an army together. And then one day, in 67 AD, something very big happened in Simon Bargoria's life. They came across a Roman uh, caravan led by uh, the general uh, Cecius, and they, were, they caught him at a really strategic point, and they attacked him, and they overpowered him, and they raided him, and this guy at the time, Cecius, was carrying a huge amount of money that they were going to use for supplies and for all kind of things. He was transferring, trans, transferring resources from one place to another. And so they just got a bunch of money and a bunch of wealth. And so Simon Bagoria takes all this wealth and all this resource, he and his caravan and his army, and they go marching into Jerusalem. And they're throwing money around. And they're being celebrated, and the people are going, oh, this is incredible. And they are worshiping, and they're, they're, they're lauding him, and they're, like, they're, just going, they're just going nuts. And they're beginning to believe, what if this guy's the Messiah? What if this guy's who we've been hearing about all our lives, we've been hoping for? 
And he, maybe he is going to come in and he's going to overthrow the Romans just like Judah Maccabees did, only he'll be better. He'll secure it. He'll make it last a long time, unlike Judah. And, and they're just getting excited. And what happened in 68, the next year, Simon Bergoria became convinced he was the Messiah that was written about in the, in the Old Testament. He came, became convinced that's him. He saw himself in those words. And he believed that's who he was. And he became, uh, the people rallied around him as though it was, that was who he was. And he began to, any dissonant, any deserters, anybody not on the same page, he would publicly execute. The people cheered. And he was uniting Judah. He was uniting Jerusalem. He was uniting, uniting the nation of Israel around his leadership and around his belief and their belief that he was the Messiah. He teamed with a guy named John, and they put together a pretty formidable uh, army to take on the Romans. And the Romans came against them. And they fought, and the Jewish people won. They won that battle real decisively. And actually, there were two more battles that happened, and they won both of them very decisively. And man, the people in Jerusalem were believing they were cheering. They were excited. This, our day has come. This is going to happen. And in the Roman Empire at the time, this is during the time when Nero's, king, Nero's reign was waning and he had actually committed suicide. And there was about an eight-month time when there wasn't really any solid, strong leadership uh, in the Roman Empire. And then an emperor named Vespasian came to power. He was a former general. Vespasian knew what was going on in Jerusalem, and he was furious about it. And he garnished a huge army behind Rome's best, most formidable general at the time, a man named Titus. And they marched toward Judah, and they marched on Jerusalem. And when they got there, this massive army surrounded for five months. Nothing came in, nothing got out. And they began to starve the people. And then after five months, they attacked. And they went in. And they destroyed the place. In Matthew 24, Jesus talked about, he prophesied this event would happen. And he was true. He said, there's, he said look at this temple. He told his disciples, see this beautiful temple here? It's going to be torn to the ground. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D. The Romans came in, they destroyed it. When the temple melted and the gold melted, they literally were taking it apart brick by brick to get the gold. They ravaged the place. In fact, the spoils of that uh, invasion were what was used to build the Roman Colosseum. And it was a, a horrible, tragic event. When uh, Josephus writes about it, he writes as though it was like an, an apocalypse of just unforeseen horror uh, that went on in Jerusalem during those, the time, those five months and then during the invasion. And they say that every day up to a thousand Jews were crucified by the Romans. Every day, every day, a thousand Jewish men and women would be literally crucified there in their own city. Finally, they captured Simon, Bargoria, when they did, they put him on a platform and rolled him and transported him back to Rome. 
the entire time he was being transported, they would constantly flog him. His back was shredded. When he got to Rome, he was virtually dead. And they took his body and they held it up and they hurled it down a cliff. It was smashed on a rock. And with his death, Simon Bergoria's death, the Messianic movement of 68, 69, and 70 that went on in Jerusalem came to an end. It was over. It was done. And if you look at the history of that time, again, that 80-year period, 40 years before and 40 years after Jesus' public ministry, there were several similar movements. Several. And they all had the same way. They got a leader to get them started. They were all political. They were the military emphasis. They would all get started and they would get some momentum. And then the Romans would come in. They would crush the rebellion and they would crucify its leader or they would execute the leader in some way and it was over. It was over. There's only one messianic movement in all the history of Israel that had a different outcome. And that was the messianic movement of Jesus. And it was very different than the other messianic movements. One way it was different is Jesus wasn't political. He wasn't starting a, a military or a political revolution at all. In fact, if you read in the Gospel of John, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with the fishes and loaves, the Bible says the people started believing he was the Messiah. He was, this, he was going to be sort of this prototypical Messiah like Judah Maccabees, who was a warrior, and they wanted to make him king, and they were hoping to provoke this conflict with Rome. And you know what Jesus did? He left. He didn't want to be involved in the political sphere. He didn't want to be involved in the military sphere. He left. He got out of there. He was apolitical, unlike the other ones. The other thing about his movement that's really unique and is remarkable is that every other movement when the leader was crucified or, or executed or killed, the movement died instantly. For some remarkable reason, when Jesus was crucified, and we know the story when he was crucified, he literally stood alone. He was no threat. In fact, we talked about this Friday at our Good Friday service. When Pontius Pilate brought him out and was trying to release him and not crucify him, one of the things he said, and you can read it in John 19, 5, he, he told the, the people demanding his crucifixion, he said, look at this man. Behold the man. A Latin word, he said, humo, behold the man. Look at this guy. And they had beaten him and they had whipped him. And they had scourged him. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head, and he was in a robe, and they put a reed in his hand. And he's sitting there like, 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 a, like he's going, look at this joke. Look at this. You, does he look like a threat to the Roman Empire? Does he look like a revel? What kind of revolution is this guy going to lead? Everybody turned against him. No one was saying, don't crucify him. Everybody wanted him dead. He's going, what kind of a threat is he? But somehow, after his crucifixion, his messianic movement exploded. 
It exploded in Jerusalem. It exploded in Judea and Samaria. It exploded in that part of the world. But then something even more extraordinary happened. As his Messianic movement began to explode in places where they weren't Jewish, they had no ties to the Jewish faith. Somehow it was exploding in, in, we read this in Rome, it was exploding in Corinth, it was exploding in the old Greek empire. It was exploding everywhere people took the gospel. Everywhere it went. Historians, and I've read many historians' views on this, they have no idea. There is no explanation. Historians look at this phenomenon and they go, we, we cannot explain this. We have no explanation. This is utterly baffling to a historian who's trying to make sense of what, what caused this to happen. Why did this messianic movement that was so different than the others not have the same outcome as the others? Why was it so radically, remarkably, extraordinarily different? Well, Paul says here in Romans chapter one, the first four verses, I think, speaks to that. And again, here's what he says. He was called to be an apostle. Verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Back in those days, again, the word gospel, we think of the word gospel in terms of Jesus. Jesus, of course, has taken over that word, which was great. But it was an ancient Roman word. And the original idea of a gospel is in every town, every community, back in the Roman Empire, they had a place where people would gather and hear the news. I heard a, we, there was a movie that was out a few months ago during COVID with Tom Hanks called The News. I don't know, it was something about the news. Y'all remember the news movie? Tom Hanks. And, and people back in those days, because there was no TV, no radio, they would gather and somebody would read them the news. There was a gathering. And this, the gospel, there was a place in every city where people would gather to hear announcements to hear what's going on and when somebody stood up and on behalf of the emperor announced the great victories of the emperor and the salvation the people would experience because of his great victories that was called the gospel it was an announcement that the king was conquering and the salvation you would benefit from because of his conquest. And Paul is writing here and he says, this is the real gospel. And he says, here's a unique about this gospel. It was promised beforehand in the prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son whose earthly life he was a descendant of David. But through the spirit of holiness, through the Holy Spirit, he was declared to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. You know, the Jewish people had Two kind of understandings of the Messiah. The real popular one was called Menke Messe. I hope I'm saying that right. Menke Messiah. Menke Messiah. And it meant the King Messiah. But there was another understanding. It was called Mishe Yosef. And the prototype was not the king, but it was Joseph who was a sufferer. Joseph who suffered before he came into reign. In fact, when Stephen, the apostle Stephen, or the, the Stephen in the book of Acts was preaching to the Jewish leaders about Jesus being the Messiah, he talked about the story of Joseph. 
and how Joseph suffered. He was rejected by his brothers, but he suffered and was raised up. And he said the same thing happened with Jesus. He was rejected by his brothers. He suffered, and he's been raised up. And Paul's saying this is what the Scriptures teach. You know, there's at least two places that I could speak of, and there's many more, but I'll just share these two with you real quick. In the Bible, where the prophets speak of the Messiah, his sufferings, and the glories to come about. And one is in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is written 1,100 years before Christ, written by King David. Verse 1 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sound familiar? Something Jesus cried out from the cross. And what Jesus was doing there in crying out was telling that audience, Psalm 22 is happening. What was contained in this psalm is happening in front of you. And if you read that psalm, it talks about a man who is suffering extraordinary agony. He's being mocked. He is being mocked and laughed at. He is on display in front of people. His hands and his feet are pierced. His body is stretched out. He's going through this grueling torment and this grueling torture. And then as the psalm goes on, he begins to change note. And he begins to talk about how, in this psalm, how he will declare the message of God, the gospel of God, to the ends of the earth. All the families of the earth will believe because dominion belongs to God. He goes on and he says, the poor will rejoice, the poor will be fed, and the rich will worship. And they'll bow down before the Lord because of him. And he begins, and this is Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 is another psalm. It talks about the sufferings of the Messiah. You can read them. And then it says at the end of it, it says, but because of his suffering, he will see the light of life. In other words, he'll come back to life. And he will justify the many. Many will come to know the Lord through him. And, he did, and it means simply this, not just the Jewish people, but the entire planet is going to come to God through him. There was a uh, rabbi that was, lived 100 years ago named Alfred Edelsheim. He was studying in New York to be a rabbi. He was studying the scriptures. He was going through a very, rabbinical schools, very strict, very tough. Uh, all rabbis memorize the entire Old Testament. Um, it's a very rigorous training. He's going through this. And one day he's in New York, and he, he just, something occurs to him. He goes, you know, it's amazing how all these Gentiles I'm surrounded by know about our God. They know about our God. They know our stories. They know the Bible. They know the law. It was just kind of remarkable to him how all these Gentiles knew so much about Judaism and, and the, the God of the Hebrew people. And so he set out to do some research. He wanted to go, why did this? Why is this? How did this happen? And he researched very extensively, and in his research, he came back with one word conclusion, a one word conclusion of how this happened. And his one word was Jesus. And he said in that moment, he realized, he had an epiphany. Oh my God, he is the Messiah. He has done exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is declared 
the Son of God. Because we read in the Old Testament, we read hundreds of years ago, and even over a thousand years before he came, descriptions of his death, descriptions of what he would do, and we see the consequences of it. There is no arguing this. It is indisputable. He has brought about what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And then he goes on here and he says something else about him. He says he has been, we, we see it in the Old Testament, but he also says he's been declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Now again, like the word gospel, the word Son of God, we all think of Jesus, but initially that's not who you would have thought of. The word Son of God arose in the ancient Near East many years before Jesus was here on the earth. And it was basically a way of declaring that the God of a people had chosen a certain king to be the ruler. When you said somebody was a son of God, it was announcing that the gods were with him, the controllers of history were behind him, and he is the center of existence, and he needs to become the center of your existence. That's what that declaration meant. And it would, no matter whether it was Augustus or a Roman emperor or one of the ancient Greek emperors or the Persian emperors, when, when they would come into power, there, somebody would go and would announce the gospel that the Son of God is on the throne and that Son of God would have been that emperor and that's what that would have implied. That the gods that controlled history had made him the center of history and that he needs to become the center of their history. And what Paul is saying here is something very powerful and profound. He's saying Jesus Christ has been declared by Almighty God to be the Son of God with power. And it's not by the force of the militaries behind him or he's the king politically. It is by the power of his resurrection. By his resurrection, God is saying... The, the God who controls history, the God who controls the universe is saying, this is my son. He is the center of everything and you would do well to make him the center of your life. You know, we just got through an election. Let's say the next election comes here four years from now and there's candidates running and you don't know which one to vote for. Maybe there's a candidate, you like him, maybe you don't like him or her, or maybe you're kind of like, ah, who knows, you know, who knows. Let's say this particular candidate, though, while campaigning, gets assassinated. They're killed, they're assassinated. And then three days later, they are resurrected from the dead. They come back to life. It's literally a miracle. I don't know about you, but I'm going to vote for that candidate. That candidate has my vote. That is a declaration 
much more powerful than their position on taxes or the military or whatever else. That's a compelling, powerful declaration. And this is what Paul is saying. Hey, there's been a powerful, compelling declaration about the way you and I need to orient our life. About what's going to matter. About what's essential. About who should be central in our existence. And it's the resurrected Savior of humanity, Jesus Christ. It is Him and no other. This is how Paul introduces Jesus. He is God's Son. He is the center of history. He was written about hundreds and thousands of years before he ever appeared, and he fulfilled those prophecies, and God raised him from the dead. And he has led a messianic movement. It has lasted 2,000 years. It literally covers the earth, and there's never has been or will be anything like it. And this morning, he's inviting you and I to make a commitment of our life to center our life and our existence around him, around what he's doing, around what's important to him, around what he thinks ought to be going on in our lives. Join me and pray together, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his presence in history, in our lives, and in the earth. And though everybody agrees he was a great man and he was a wonderful thinker, he's the most quoted sage of human history, sort of the prototype example. Or this is saying he's much more than that. And we say the history and what we see in his life is, says resoundingly much more than that. It says that he is the resurrected son of the living God. And what that means is he is the very center of history and that each human being would do well to center their history around him. And I pray for us here, if we're living apart from him, if we're living a life independent of him, we're just blowing him off and acting like he doesn't matter and maybe being occasionally religious about it. I pray you'd convict us. I pray you'd bring us to a point of truth and of honesty to accept him, and to live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.